This morning, uh, we're going to spend some time in God's Word, as you know, and um, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. So hopefully that brings you great joy, as it does to me, uh, one of my favorite books in Scripture. And we're working our way. I trust uh, we'll finish this book by the end of the year. And, um, and so I trust and hope that it's been a delight to you. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. It's four or five verses we're going to consider this morning. We're just going to work our way verse by verse. It'll be helpful for you to have the Scripture in your lap. If you want to find that in the Pew Bible, you find that on page 981. And if you are visiting with us and don't have a Bible, we would like that Bible in front of you in the Pew Rack to be our gift to you. And so please uh, feel free to take that as um, our, our gift to you. We believe this to be a treasure. We believe the Word of God uh, to be God's revelation to us. And it's His means by which He brings people to Himself. So please take that and avail yourself to the Word of God. Well, hopefully you found your way to Philippians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 12. Hear now the Word of God. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, uh, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Father, we thank You for Your Word in which we can now consider, set our hearts upon it. We pray, Father, that You would help us to see You through it. That You would indeed come and speak to us through Your living and abiding Word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword is able to pierce the division between soul and spirit. That it would come and do a mighty work in us. That it would encourage us. There are people here, Father, I trust who need to be encouraged today. It would convict us. I trust there are those here who need to be convicted today. And it would embolden us. I trust that there are some here who are timid and fearful. I pray that Your Word would come through Your Spirit who is with us even now. That we might know Christ and know Him even more through Your Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On August 7th, 1954, at the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, two men ran perhaps the greatest mile race ever. It's been known from that point on as the Miracle Mile. The race between the British Roger Bannister and the Australian John Landy. The only two men up uh, up to that day who had ever run the mile in less than four minutes. Bannister, who was a medical doctor, would eventually become Sir Roger Bannister, had a strategy. He was going to relax, slow down a bit, conserve energy during the third lap in order to store up as much energy as he could to pour it on in the fourth and final lap. The Australian John Landy had a different strategy. As soon as the gun fired, he was going to run as fast as he could and see what kind of lead he could gain and try to maintain it to the very end. And so the gun went off and both men went about their strategy. Landy poured it on. And by the beginning of the third lap, his large lead was even increasing, leaving Bannister in his dust. 
Bannister was forced to adjust his plan, knowing he could not save his energy for the fourth lap and began to give everything he had in that third lap. Well, soon Bannister began to to catch up to Landy, and his lead was cut in half. And by the time the bell rung for the fourth lap, Bannister was right behind Landy. At which, um, somehow, in that fourth lap, even though Landy was running as fast as he could, he found more energy and even increased his world um, record pace. But Bannister kept up with him. And both men were truly flying, faster than any men had ever run up to this point. Bannister right on Landy's heels, but Bannister cannot get by Landy. Well, then came the famous moment. As both men came around the home stretch with um, perhaps uh, um, less than an eighth of a mile to go, maybe even less, the, the crowd began to roar in excitement as to what they were seeing. And in that roar of the crowd, Landy could no longer hear the footfalls of Bannister behind him. And therefore he turned to look, turning his head to the left, slowly losing his uh, uh, rhythm, losing his pace at which um, Bannister passed him on the right and won the miracle mile in the fastest mile time ever recorded. If you visit Vancouver today, you can see a bronze statue of this event. Landy looking back to his left while Bannister passed him on the right. After the race and recalling it, Landy said, when Lot's wife looked back, she was turned into a pillar of salt. When I looked back, I was turned into a pillar of bronze. When We see here in our text, when Paul is describing the Christian life, he offers us some advice. I think advice that Landy probably could have uh, used on that day. You see it in verse 13 when he says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. It seems to me when I read Scripture that Paul was a sports fan. Um, I trust he would have liked baseball if it was invented. Um, But he was forced to be a fan of runners. He liked running. You see this in his uh, conversation with the Ephesian elders saying, I want to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. Or when he wrote to the Romans when he said, It does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God. He reminded the Corinthians of their runners in their day, saying, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. To the Galatians, he lamented the problems that they were facing, writing, you were running well. And likewise said to them later on that he wants to make sure that he was not or had not run in vain. Very similar to what he had already said in the book of Philippians, if you remember back in chapter 2, when he said, I, am, I want to be proud that I did not run in vain. At the end of his life, you know, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It seems like in the apostle's mind, the Christian life is a race. It's very clear to me in this text. That's the imagery that he has. We see it here as he tells us that he's straining for what lies ahead. In verse 14, very specifically, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a goal. There's a prize that Paul says as he pushes forward, as he runs this race as he exerts this effort, it is a race marked by effort, Paul will tell us. It's marked by focus. It's marked by a goal. In fact, as I've been studying this text uh, over the past couple of weeks, I read and, and listened to a, a number of sermons, and I was surprised to hear how many pastors had a, a Philippians 3 story. 
how many uh, men who preach God's Word were impacted by this passage. I was surprised because I too have a Philippians 3 story. It was in August of 1997 when I was just three weeks married and my wife and I had packed all of our belongings up in our two cars and were leaving California, perhaps forever, it seems like forever, and headed out to North Carolina. And uh, the, the, the opportunities before us were wide open as this 22-year-old, now wedded to this 21-year-old, packed up everything to start a new life. And I remember thinking, you know, what adventures will I have? What opportunities will be ahead as I, I explore marriage and one day start a family and pursue graduate work and the careers that will come to me? It was a couple days into that trip when I was in Denver, Colorado, and I was in a friend's basement who lived in Denver, and we were just spending the night there that I picked up that Bible early in the morning and somehow came to Philippians chapter 3. And I remember reading these verses that we'll consider this morning as if God were speaking right to my heart, as if God were saying, you need to forget everything you've done and run to me. You need to forget everything you've done that's bad, everything you've done that you think is successful. You haven't done anything yet. You don't know me at all. Run! I heard him say in my heart, run! And it was powerful in my life. In fact, I immediately considered these verses and and committed them to memory as if God were saying it is time to go. It is time to pick up the pace. You see, Christian life is not simply about accepting Jesus as it has often taught us. The Christian life is about following Jesus. And we have repackaged Christianity in our day to think, okay, what do I get from Christ? And I get salvation, and praise the Lord, we do. And and we think, well, I get that, and I get this, and I get this, and we kind of list all the things that Jesus gives us, and we never get around to consider what we get is the opportunity to actually follow Christ. To actually pursue after Him, after actually give our life to Him. I think Tozer was right when he said, everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. A term, incidentally, which is not found in the Bible. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. Christ may be received without creating any special love for Him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, but he is not hungry nor thirsty after God. And I think how many people have, have prayed a prayer of acceptance to Christ and think, I'm just going to coast on into heaven. I'm just going to slide on in and live a nice easy life until I get into eternity. Well, I think there are many of them, but Paul was not one of them. Paul says, I want to follow Christ. It is a race for me. In fact, I don't notice, know if you noticed in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or already made perfect, but I press on, he says. I'm going to press on. And again in verse 14, I press on towards the goal. And even in verse 13, you see this here, he's straining forward to what lies ahead. I don't know, but this doesn't sound easy to me. Straining on. Straining doesn't sound easy. I don't strain when I eat. I don't strain when I drink coffee. I don't watch TV straining. I don't walk straining. Straining is something that requires effort. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. And Paul says, I want you to understand, my Christian life is hard. My Christian life involves straining and pressing on. In fact, that phrase, that word press on, that he uses in verse 12 and verse 14, he already used earlier in this chapter in verse 6. 
when he said here that he was a persecutor of the church. That word persecute is just the noun form of the verb press on. In other words, what Paul was saying, I believe, is that, is that he was running after the church to persecute it with this great zeal. And he now takes that same zeal and he's running after Christ. He's pressing on towards him. Please understand that no one becomes godly by accident. No one has ever become accidentally Christ-like. It requires effort. It requires work. It requires straining. And Paul says, I'm away with this lukewarm Christianity. I'm going to strain. I'm going to strive. And I know when people hear things like this, that we say we need to strain and work, you think that's legalism. That's legalism. Don't tell me about work. It's all by grace, pastor. Don't tell me about work. It's legalism to say strain and strive and work. Well, it's not legalism if you're digging for treasure. Right? If Christ is your treasure and you're going to strain towards Him because He is your joy and delight and that you long for Him and you are willing to work to have more of Him and to follow Him more closely and to conquer sin, that's not legalism. That is seeking your great joy in Jesus by which He is therefore glorified in that pursuit. I'm straining towards Him. I long for Him. This week, my uh, my parents who are visiting with us, they, um, they had taken our four oldest children down uh, to southern Virginia with him. And so we, we were left with our three youngest. And uh, I don't know about your kids this time of year, but the son, for some reason, gets up at, at 5.30 in the morning, and I feel like hanging blankets on the windows because my children rise with the sun. And so this week, my, my little children, around 5.30, walked into Mommy and Daddy's bedroom, and there they promptly crawled into bed and and cuddled with mommy and daddy and, and, uh, and eventually fell asleep a couple of times. And it reminded me, there was a time in my life, it was a couple of years ago, in which all my children would do this. And, and there, there was this phase for about two months when, when we had six children then, and, and all six of the children wanted to cuddle daddy. And I remember I would put one arm out and I'd have a kid right here and I'd put another arm out and I'd have a kid right here and I'd, I'd take a small one and put him right here and then I'd, I'd get another head on one leg and another head on another leg. And there was always one, I forget which one, would crawl up on my head and just kind of sleep between me and the pillow. And I got all these kids, I was just covered with people. And it's just this, this, this glorious reality. And I was cuddling my, my little two-year-old son Ezekiel this week and just finally remembering those events. And, and I've been studying this text and it just hit me. I want my life to count. I want my life to count for my children. And when I think about my wife lying next to me in bed, I I want my life to count as her husband. And when I think about the church that God has invited me to shepherd, I want my life to count for God's people. And when I think about the lost people that I know that don't know Christ, I want my life to count for them. I want to live a life worthy of the opportunities in which God has given me. I feel like this is what is on the apostle's heart. He says, use your life. God has given you a life. And I do not think your life is given to you to spend on yourself. I think it is to chase after Jesus, to run after him. And so I intend this morning, as we look at this passage, to disturb you a little bit. I I want to make some of you uncomfortable because I love you and I love God's word. And I think some of us need to be shaken from complacency. Some of us need to be freed from this casual Christianity that we're living to realize it's not God's intention. We are intended to run after Him. 
Paul describes this pursuit of Christ, this running after Christ in four ways. He says we should run after Him with dissatisfaction, run with assurance, run with focus, and run to win. First of all, consider with me that we are to run with dissatisfaction. Note verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So Paul says, uh, let's be clear, I haven't obtained um, uh, this perfection. Right? I haven't obtained this. And I think what he means when he says attain this, what he was just speaking about in verse 10, if you remember a couple weeks ago, he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and fellowship with him in his sufferings and become like him in his death. This is the man I want to be. But then he says, I don't, I want you to understand, I have, I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it. I haven't made, been made perfect. And the case is not clear. He says in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm not there yet, he says, which I think is somewhat comforting because we think this is Paul. And we think, about Paul, we think about the guy standing on the tall building with a cape flapping in the wind, right? And, and he is, I mean, this man has this love for Christ and this devotion to prayer and this understanding of God's word and this willingness to sacrifice, this care for the lost. He's planting churches all over the known world and he looks at himself and says, I got so much farther to go. There's so much more of Christ to know. There's so much more of Jesus to experience, to lay hold of. I, I love uh, one of my favorite letters that Paul wrote is 2 Timothy. And it's the le- last letter that Paul will write. He, he is in prison, and he knows he's about to die. Uh, he'll get out of prison when he writes Philippians, but a couple years later he'll be imprisoned, and he knows his time is short. And he gets to the end of that letter in 2 Timothy. And in the fourth chapter, he, he writes to Timothy, and he says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Right? It's winter, most likely. And Paul's in a subterranean dungeon, probably with a grate above him. He says, I'm cold. I need a coat. Bring me a coat. But above all, bring me the Bible. And bring me my library. He's like a good pastor. Bring all the books, right? But above all, bring the parchments, which most scholars believe to be the Scripture. Here's a man who knows his life is almost exhausted. And he says, I need the Bible. I need to pursue Christ. I need to know him through that. He is striving to the end. And he's not striving, of course, to earn God's righteousness. He's been given God's righteousness. And God said one day to Paul, who was very zealous in earning his own righteousness, as we saw earlier in chapter 3, here, take my righteousness. It's much better than yours. And he says, all mine is rubbish. I want Christ. I have Christ's righteousness. Rest in that righteousness. You could rest there. But the amazing thing is that the righteousness of Christ is not a sedative to Paul. It is a stimulant to Paul. It's like a massive cup of coffee and he's all jacked up and fired up and I got the righteousness of Christ and that's just, that's just the starting gun for me. I'm ready to run. I'm ready to go. God's rest is somewhat restless, I think. I'm not there yet, he says. I haven't obtained it. I'm not perfect. Please understand I need more of him. And I think this is a great challenge to us. We need a holy dissatisfaction with comfortable Christianity, with casual Christianity. I think so much of our faith today, especially in this land, tries to make you comfortable. And Christianity has been packaged to that God's just going to meet all of your needs. And whatever you need is, God is there to meet it. And He's going to, to comfort you. And we praise the Lord that He does comfort us. But I think we should also be a little dissatisfied. I mean, I don't know. Is anyone here perfectly satisfied with the amount of joy you have? 
Anyone here perfectly satisfied with the amount of peace that you have? When, in light of the fact that God says my joy is incalculable, it is unfathomable, it is inexhaustible, it is eternal. Anyone satisfied with that? Anybody satisfied with their understanding and their pursuit and their knowledge of God? I think we should be a little dissatisfied, a little discontent, wanting more. Here is Paul, by the way, who has gone to heaven and come back, occasionally speaks to Jesus face to face, casts out demons, heals the sick, raises the dead, is brilliant and godly. He's writing scripture. He's planting churches all over the world. And he says, I want more. I want more. I want more of Jesus. I want to know Jesus better. I want to overcome more sin in my life. And I think we feel that struggle. Not only do we want more of Christ, we want more victory over the sin that we sing, that we have. We, of course, as we follow Christ, we will rearrange our lives to follow Him and to obey Him and to pursue after Him. And yet there's another part of us, doesn't it, that calls us occasionally. Like the phone rings from yesterday and our heart longs to pick it up. The flesh still calls us. And we're this mixed bag of of emotions and, and longings and ambitions. And we feel the pull of sin. And Paul felt the pull of sin. And he says, I want that to drive me towards Jesus. When sin comes and temptation comes, it should make us dissatisfied in our relationship with Christ. When you feel sick, you're driven to the doctor. When you're failing in school, you're driven into a tutor, when we are limping and failing in righteousness, it should drive us to a merciful God to long to know Him better and to follow Him better. I think some people here probably should be a little more dissatisfied with where they are in their walk with Christ. I'm probably included in that list to have a greater longing. Some of us are too comfortable with where we are and where we've been and maybe where we have been stuck. And Paul says, I have a dissatisfaction. I want more of Jesus. But please hear that his dissatisfaction does not mean that he doubts that he has this relationship with Christ. He goes on and says, secondly, we run with assurance. Look back in verse 12. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see that beautiful phrase? Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has seized me. He has laid hold of me. And when that, that same verb is used in Mark 9 and verse 18 when it's spoken of a demon that says whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. He says, well, Christ has seized me like that. He has taken hold of me. He has chased me down like a criminal and he has apprehended me and he has grabbed me and he will never let me go. In fact, we saw Paul marching to Damascus to seize Christians and it's then when Christ Christ sees him as the mighty hand of God reaches down out of heaven and grabs hold of Paul, grabs hold of him and will not let go. Christian, you have been taken hold of by Christ. He has seized you. Therefore, you rest not in your own feeble strength to hold on to him, but in his unconquerable strength to hold on to you. He's taken hold of you. Years ago, I was backpacking in Zion National Park. And there's this uh, wonderful peak out there that juts up from the valley floor. It's called Angel's Landing. And the story is that one day a boy looked up at this peak and said, Daddy, has anybody been up there? His daddy responded, only angels can get up there. Right? Well, I got up there. 
Um, I didn't fly up there. Of course, I'm not the only one. There have been thousands who have got up there. But it is somewhat of a challenging hike. And the challenges of it is that when you're hiking up to this peak, you're hiking along this ridge line. But the ridge is only about five feet wide and it's most narrow. And on one side of the ridge is a sheer 1,500-foot drop. And the other side of the ridge there is a sheer 1,200-foot drop. And the mountain literally is five feet wide at places where you're hiking along this, trying to get up to that peak. And I remember hiking up on uh, uh, up to Angel's Landing. And if you look over the edge, if you have a, enough courage to, you will see people climbing up the hard way, up the sheer side of the cliff. And I found out later that it takes days to do it. And they'll actually climb up the side of this 1,500-foot cliff, and then they'll get tired, and they'll pitch a, a hammock-like tent hanging on the side of that cliff, and there they'll, they'll sleep there overnight. I've been told by a friend who does this that the, the most troubling part of sleeping there is just the wind going right under you. As you know, there's nothing under you, and all you're depending upon are your, your, your crampons and your equipment that's going to hold on to that mountain. I think a lot of people think of Christianity in that way, that Jesus Christ is like this immovable mountain to which we must hold on to for dear life. You know, hold on to the very end. And Paul says he's not like that at all. Christ has taken hold of me. He has grabbed me. He has laid hold of me. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so if Christ has laid hold of you, how should that impact you? Should you say, well, I'm just good for eternity? Well, he's got hold of me. He's not going to let go. I'll just kind of coast for the rest of my life. Well, Paul says, no, that not at all. Christ is too wonderful for that. I strain, I press on, I long for him. Not because he's afraid that he's going to lose Christ, because Christ has made him his own. He says this here. Look at verse 12 again. I, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. He has this great assurance that I'm Christ, and now I can run towards him in great confidence and faith that I will never lose him. It's almost like a coach who grabs you by the shoulders and says, uh, son, I want you in the game. I want you to go play for me. And you never doubt the coach's confidence when you go in that game is you want to please him because you want to to show that you're worthy of his trust and he has laid hold of Paul and says okay now Paul run towards me run towards righteousness you would do well to never get beyond this truth that Jesus has taken hold of you you think about all the barriers that he has had to go in order to to gain a, a grasp of you think of the length that he has gone to to take hold of you and to lay hold of you and he says because I got you you need to start running you need to start pressing on and straining forward move run with great confidence that I'll never let you go perhaps you're here this morning you're not a Christian I want to be very clear at this point and when we say run after Christ, we are not in any way saying we're running after forgiveness or running after grace or trying to run in such a way in which we, we prove ourselves acceptable to Him. That's not the case at all. In fact, Paul was living that life and one day um, God showed him that he's going to give him grace. In fact, if you look in verse 9 of chapter 3, we considered this a couple weeks ago when Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He says, I don't want my own righteousness for my own goodness. My own, you know, I'm a good person type of righteousness. But he goes on. But that which comes through faith in Christ. And so Paul says, I have received the righteousness of Christ. I am, I am right before God and I receive that as a gift. Christ has done that work for me. Christ has died on the cross for me. And he has paid my sin there upon the cross. And is three days later rose from the dead. And the Bible says, whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. 
that is, they submit their life to him and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, will be saved. Paul is saved. Paul is grasped by Christ. He's not trying to work uh, for his salvation. He has received it and now is trying to live out the implications of it. What does it look like for one to live who has been taken hold of Christ? And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would very much encourage you not to run this race. Not to, to run for forgiveness or peace or joy or anything. I would pray that you would call out to God and ask Him to take hold of you. That's how you start the race. That you would call out to Him for His forgiveness. It would be something I'd love to talk to you about this week if you want to get a hold of me and we could consider what it means to let Christ take hold of us. Well, Paul thirdly says we run with focus. You see this in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He says there's one thing. He has this this focus, this single-mindedness. He's this runner in the race. I ran in high school uh, cross-country and track, and one thing we were taught was you don't look around. You have a focus. You move forward. You're not looking at your competitors. You're not waving to the crowd. You're not admiring the scenery. You are focused forward. There is one thing in your mind, and that is to get across the finish line as fast as you can. And Paul says, there's one thing I do. It reminds me of the psalmist who John read for us this morning when Psalm 27 says, one thing I ask. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. There's one thing, Paul says. I'm doing one thing. And what a word for that is, that is for us here in Northern Virginia. Our lives are pretty busy. We're doing a lot of things. We're pulled a lot of different directions and our plates are pretty full. And brothers and sisters, I think you and I can live our lives in pursuit of countless things and end up accomplishing nothing of eternal significance. We could give ourselves to so many things. There's one thing that counts, Paul says. And it doesn't mean that's all... Uh, he, what it means is that everything I'm now doing... I'm doing in light of this one thing. This one thing is directing me and focusing me in all my activities that I would press forward, that I would strain forward, as he says. Not that he stops all activity, but it informs all his activity. In fact, he goes on and says, with this focus, what we must do is forget what lies behind. Don't look back. There's a problem with that there in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind. The problem is, the problem is, is that Scripture constantly tells us to remember the past. Right next week, God willing, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we are going to do this, as Jesus commanded us, in remembrance of Him. We're going to remember all the work of Christ. We're told throughout Scripture that we should remember the past and consider the past. Memory is helpful for us. But memory can also hinder us. I think quite often, uh, when we are filled with uh, thoughts of our past successes and our past ministries, we get distracted as to where we are supposed to go what we are supposed to do. I think past successes make us smug and lazy. I think Paul could have been tempted after all the work he has done for Christ to think, okay, I've done enough and just revel in all that he has accomplished. Paul says, I'm forgetting all that. I'm not even worried about that. The race is not over, Paul says. I have not won yet. I'm pressing on. I'm not considering everything I've accomplished, but I'm moving forward. I think many try to live in the present by, by reliving past successes by thinking about what they have accomplished. I think this is especially tempting for our senior adults. 
If I could speak to you very gently and humbly, I would suggest to you, I believe, based upon the authority of God's Word, that your race is not over. And we praise the Lord for what you have accomplished, many of which many of us benefit from. But there is work left to do for you. There is a race left for you to run. I've been told that old age is the point in life when a person ceases to look forward and always looks backwards. If that's the case, then there are a lot of old Christians, whether they're old in years or not. And Paul says, I'm forgetting those things. I'm not going to let those memories distract me from the work that I have to do today and the work I plan to do tomorrow. I'm forgetting what lies behind. But if there's a group of people that, that relive their past successes, losing track of where they ought to go, there's probably also a group who are, are relishing in past wrongs, things that have been done against them, people who have hurt them, filled with bitterness and disappointment. And they are so entangled by the past wrongs that they never move forward. I think there are in churches throughout our land many people who are spiritual cripples, if you will, paralyzed by grudges, bitterness, and and the tragedies which happened to them in the past. Paul says, one thing I do, I'm forgetting that. I'm going to trust God and move forward. I'm not going to let that hold me back. Well, if there's a group that is filled with bitterness over past wrongs and those who are just reliving past successes, I wonder if there's still a third group that is focusing on past sins that they have committed. It's often filled with shame. I think shame is a very powerful motivator. I think it can incredibly hinder us and hinder relationships we have if not impacted by the gospel. I think many people live a life and they look back and they can't believe the things they have done and the people they have hurt. And maybe it was a life of this. Maybe it was just one moment where at the time you felt you were justified and the next day comes this weight of guilt and this sense of uncleanness and filthiness and they just can't shake it. They just can't get over it. There was a woman in my life who's gone to be with the Lord, very dear to me in my heart. And, and uh, she uh, had, had been plagued with shame for decades because probably 50, 60 years, because there was a time in her life in Southern California when a migrant family came to her and had no place to stay and a young family, and she turned them away and she said, no, you cannot stay here. And the next day and the next day and for decades after that was so filled with shame. And whenever I would talk to her about Jesus, this would be the first thing that would come up. But what about this? What about, will God forgive me for doing that? And the shame just took a hold of her life. Maybe there's some here that are just paralyzed by shame. And if you are, I would commend you to consider the Apostle Paul. Consider his life. Because he did some pretty bad stuff. And remember when Stephen preached his first sermon there in Acts chapter 7, and, and, and immediately they stoned him, right? That's, that's the New Testament for how did he do, right? Well, he was stoned. Well, that must have been a good sermon, right? And there's Paul, right? He's approving of it. He likes this. Get him! Throw rocks. He likes that. And then immediately after that, you read, he goes to the high priest for this permission to hunt down Christians. He gets like his 007 license to kill Christians. And he's off and he's hunting them down. Whole families terrorizing them, imprisoning them. And for some way, this never left Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So I was a persecutor. He understood his sin. But the amazing thing is, is that God took a hold of him. In fact, when did God take a hold of him? On that road to Damascus. And why was he going to Damascus? To kill Christians. And God showed up one day and said, No more, 
you will love me and serve me and follow me and give your life to me and I will use you to plant churches all over this land. But I think I want you to see the timing. It was when Paul was at his worst that God took a hold of him by the gospel. And there are some people that maybe you know them. They think they are the one person who has found out how to sin more than God can forgive. Like, I know everybody else is a sinner, but my sin is so great that it even is greater than the work of the cross. I would commend you to look at Paul. He is proof that God saves the worst of us and uses us and empowers us, even if we have done terrible things. And Paul says, I'm not going to let my past hinder my life. I have a race to run. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm forgetting it all, and I'm moving forward. Now, I don't think this is like a memory loss. He doesn't delete the files in his brain. This is an active discipline for him to believe the gospel and not let these things plague him and slow him down. His spiritual accomplishments, his terrible sins, the painful hurts, they will not control my future, Paul says. So he's forgetting them. I don't think that means he never looks back and considers them. But he doesn't look back in a way that hinders his pursuit of Christ. He, he, in fact, he recalls these things throughout his letters. But he thanks God for the success, trusts God in the midst of the wrongs, confesses his failures, and then moves forward. He's focused on moving forward. This is how you live your life, I think. This is how you're, you're going to leave here in a little while. You're going to drive your car. And you are not going to drive your car looking out the rearview mirror. Right? Unless you won't be driving it for very long. Right? Because that's not how you drive. You drive by looking where you're going, not where you've been. Now, it's a, it's helpful to occasionally look in the rearview mirror. But if that's how you drive, it is very, very reckless. And Paul says, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to focus on where I'm going. I'm going to move forward. And so Paul runs this race of focus. Well, the last thing, way he tells us to run is to win. Look in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, there's a prize. I want that prize. I want it more than anything, Paul says. He says, there's a goal, which we might think of the finish line, and the prize would be the, the award that he would get for crossing the finish line. And, and he would never lose sight of this. Even, even to his death, as we read there in, in Second Timothy, it's almost as if Paul's pumping his fist triumphantly as he crosses the finish line saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, he declares. This is why he's running. Now this crown that, Paul, that God will put on Paul's head is not, a victor's crown, is not a king's crown, but it is a victor's crown. It is a crown signifying his accomplishment and, and the fact that he won the race. This is what Paul won to win this race. He's running for this prize. Now the question is, so what's the prize? What is it that he is ultimately pushing towards? Well, it is not the end of misery and difficulty. It is not never going to bed hungry or having a nice roof over his head. It is not simply freedom from colds and cancer. It is not even being reunited with lost loved ones and old friends. It is not a heavenly feast. It is not the fact that his tears will be wiped away. It is not freedom from sin. It is not streets of gold or the presence of angels or mansions in paradise, though he has promised all these things. The thing that Paul presses on, the thing that he wants most of all in this life and the life to come is Christ. 
is to know Him, to follow Him, to be like Him, to experience Him. The Apostle John told us the pinnacle of heaven declaring, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the price He runs after. This is what He seeks after. He says there's so much more of Christ to find. He is unfathomable. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, He said, I pray that you may have the power together with all the saints, note this, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He says it's high and deep and long and wide. It surpasses our knowledge and I want more of it. I want to know Him more. There's more to know of Him. There's more to seek after Him. When I um, go backpacking, especially out west, we, we, um, out west you, you get real high and you get above the tree line. And so you could see the peak that you need to get up to. And, and you think, okay, I just need to press on for next hour or so. And I could get to the top of that mountain and get over that pass and come back down the other side. And more often than not, you hike and you press on with that goal in mind and you get to the top. And then you realize this is not the peak at all. And there is a whole nother peak that you're going to have to climb. And then you go and climb that thing and there's often a third one. And, and goes on and it's we call these false peaks and it's very discouraging but when it comes to Christianity it is not discouraging it is amazing because just when you think you have enough of Christ and have reached Christ fuller than you have ever had and know him and follow him better than you ever had you come upon that that little crest and you see wow there is infinitely more to go there's more of Jesus to go and I'm going to run for it I want Christ this is what he's running towards but please understand I don't think this is the only prize that Paul runs toward to know Christ That is, I don't think the gospel is purely for his self-consumption. It is not simply for him. He's not only running this race for him, but he's running it for the benefit of others. He wants to bring other people with him. He wants to bring other people across this finish line. This is why in verse 17 of chapter 3, he will say, Join in imitating me. Be like me that we might run this race. In fact, there's this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians. Why don't you turn over there for a moment if you'd like to. I love this passage here that talks about uh, uh, this race in which we're running and how we live after Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul says there, In verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why? Lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. He says, I'm disciplining myself. I'm keeping my life under control so I can be a blessing to other people. See, the gospel is not purely for our gain, for our self-conception. He's giving himself to others. In fact, I appreciate uh, what Matt Chandler says about this passage here in 1 Corinthians 9. You look at verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may attain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. It's amazing to me the the extent that athletes um, order their life in order to be able to beat an opponent. I mean, Paul says that here. He says that, that they exercise, where is it? Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And if it was true in Paul's day, how much more true is it in our day? 
that these people give themselves to athletics and they, it, it, it rules their life in many ways. They, they, they uh, orient their sleep or schedule their sleep in such a way that they can get up at a certain time so that they can work out and, and then they, they, that orients their diet. They say, I'm going to have this many grams. And sometimes they weigh it out. I'll have this many grams of protein and this many grams of ounces and I'm going to eat this many blueberries and I'm going to have this many bananas. And they're like measuring everything out. Right? If I eat a banana, I'm just pretty happy. Right? I pat myself on the back. Way done. Well done, Steve. I've never in any, any time in my life thought, well, I really overdid it on those blueberries. Right? But these guys, they are just, they want, I need this many proteins and this many ounces. I need to hit me at this time in order that I might recover from this workout in order that I might be ready for the next workout so that I can have about 10 seconds of extra energy so I could defeat my opponent or I can be able to have strength to make one more play so that I can win the game. And they give their whole life to it. The question is, for what? For what? He says a, a perishable wreath. Perishable trophy. I, I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, documentaries that ESPN runs. I think they're called 30, 30 for 30 or something like that. And they show this one of this man named Marcus Dupree, who uh, maybe some of you know of him. It was years ago, but he was a running back for the University of Oklahoma. And I guess just this beast of a man, just incredible athlete. And uh, one day he, he busted up his knee and he would never get back on the football field again. And they show him going home uh, to the home that he was raised in. And his mother's dead and it's this old abandoned trailer and it's all dilapidated. And he, he walks into this trailer and he goes back to his old room where he used to live. And he walks into this room and it is littered with trophies and, and, and everywhere. This whole room is full of them. And there are news articles on the wall and there are like magazine covers with him there holding a football or a helmet there on the wall. And these are, are incredible awards and incredible trophies, all conference and best in state and unbelievable trophies. And they're all covered in cobwebs and dust. And there they are, just an old broken down trailer. All that blood and sweat and effort for what? Now, I, I've never won anything academically. I'll, I'll, I'll admit to that. And I'm sure the moment is great. But that moment passes, doesn't it? My five-year-old son Gideon got his t-ball trophy. And he thought he won the Olympics. I mean, his, this was like, look at this thing. This is what I got. I, look at what, look what I've accomplished, Dad. And I'm very proud of him, very excited for him. But I, I'm pretty sure, you know, give him 10 years, he won't have the same value on his t-ball trophy that he does at five. And they exercise all of this work. And what, what is Marcus Dupree now? He's a documentary. Um, he, he's, he's just a, a documentary. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Our trophies will never be covered in cobwebs. It's our trophies, Christ, and being with Christ. My question for you as we end, it's a question that we've been building up to, I think. Are you running? Are you straining? Is there any place in your life that you can put your finger on and say, Pastor, I am straining here. I am working my tail off for Jesus here or to know Jesus here. Or are you just sauntering? Just kind of strolling in your faith? Let me ask it this way. For some of you, when are you going to start reading your Bible? 
I mean, like, give yourself to it. Rather than, okay, I'm going to read a little bit and I put it away for a month. Or when are some of you going to start praying like you know you ought? Or when are some of you going to start getting your finances in line and start being a steward that God calls you to? Are you running? Are you pressing on or are you straining for Him? And I don't want you, please don't hear me. I'm not giving you a list. I'm not saying, thanks a lot, Pastor. And you walk out, I got 50 more things to do, and you feel burdened and weighted down. I'm not trying to burden you. I'm tr- I want God to show you the value of Christ. I'm not, God doesn't care about your behavior. He cares about your heart that informs your behavior. I want you leaving thinking, I want Jesus. And therefore, I will change my life. I will work hard. And it will not be a work of of drudgery and misery, but it will be a digging for treasure. It will be a running for a prize that your heart wants more than anything. Are you running? What would have to happen this week for you to change something in your life to pick up the pace, to begin to run because you have seen Christ and you find Him immeasurably great? Paul says in Philippians that the mature Christians should think this way. You notice verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, I'm not perfect, but mature Christians run this race rather than imagine it's over. But not everybody's in the same place with Paul. He goes on in verse 15, says, any of you, if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Is that not compassionate? You see that there? He says, don't expect every Christian to be fully mature. Don't expect everybody to be running as fast as you or at the same pace as you. Trust that God will reveal that to them and will pray for them and work in them. But he goes to verse 16. We all should agree on this. Only let those hold true to what we have already attained. Don't turn back. Keep running. Keep moving forward. Don't go backwards. Press on together. Run this race. Run the race. We're distracted. We are pulled. We are so incredibly busy that we lose sight of what matters. And it is pursuing Christ. I want my life to be a life of running after Jesus, of valuing Jesus. And I want to take as many people as I can. I want this church to be a community of people who are doing one thing, and that is running after Christ in all that we do. On the base of the Swiss Alps, there is a a marker that honors a man who, who died there, who fell to his death, rock climbing. And it, it gives his name, and then there's just a simple epitaph. It says, he died climbing. I want that to be my epitaph. I want that to be this church's epitaph. We died climbing to Jesus. We lived lives that counted. Father, we thank you for Christ. He is of supreme worth. Help us to see that and believe it, that we as your people in our joy would rearrange our lives that we might follow Him, know Him, obey Him to a greater degree for our great joy and for your glory. Move in our hearts. Disturb us today. Help us to leave this place saying, I will change because I want more of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.